The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Good morning to all of you. It is great to see you this morning, this Sunday after Christmas. We're still in the Christmas season, and uh, it has been a great time. And if you are here with us on Christmas Eve, one of the things I said was that it is important to keep the work of Christ and the person of Christ together. You don't want incarnation without atonement. And so what I'm going to want us to do for the next couple of weeks is focus on a passage in Galatians, or a set of passages in Galatians, that specialize, you might say, in settling our minds in the gospel, in what Christ has done on our behalf. Christ did not just come down as God, a very God, as a man, he came down wrapped in the kingly robes of the gospel. His identity before he was even born was as a savior who would take away our sins. And so I want to turn to a passage in scripture that will help us settle our minds in this important area. In fact, we have to say that in order for the gospel to have its full effect in our lives, in order for the truths that we sang about this Christmas, for them to have their full effect in our lives, we need to be convinced of the gospel. We need to be convinced that what we believe has come from God himself, directly from Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul and to you. If we're not convinced of that, then we're going to have trouble with our spiritual lives, with our walk with the Lord. So we are going to consider today, first, that this gospel that we celebrate, that we sing about, that we live by, that it has come from Jesus Christ, without question. That it came from Christ to Paul and now to us. And then next week we'll examine in detail this gospel. And we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. But what I want us to see today in this message is that this is a gospel that we can be absolutely certain about. In a day where certainty is decried as some sort of arrogant uh, demeanor towards others, if you can claim that you are certain of uh, spiritual and eternal truths, that kind of sets you up as someone who is arrogant. And in that kind of setting, in that kind of air that we breathe, to say that we can be certain about the gospel is itself countercultural. But we want to see that in Scripture we are uh, told and taught that we can be certain about this gospel, about its messenger, and so is uh, specifically that messenger being Paul. So let's get the context here. We're jumping right into the book of Galatians. We've been in Revelation, I know, and we're jumping into Galatians, kind of parachuting in, as it were. So let's get our con- uh, contextual bearings. Uh, the, the, Paul is writing to the Galatian churches, and Galatia is in modern-day Turkey, basically. That's where it, it, it was. And uh, northwest of Syria, in Iraq, its northern border right along the Black Sea, so you can imagine it's south of Ukraine and, and, and about a little east of Greece. That's the section of the world we're talking about. And Paul's writing to a collection of churches in this, what was then called the Galatian region. And he's writing because there was quite the situation occurring in these Galatian churches. What had happened was, is that these churches had started well, they had received the gospel from Paul and from his associates, they had believed it, they had been transformed, the spirit was working in them in remarkable ways, there's great fruit being born in their lives, great fruits of love and sacrifice and so on, even evidenced in Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians as we'll see, but something had happened, something that had happened to take them off course. A group of false teachers had come in and started saying that, yes, you need Jesus, we believe that, but you also need to obey the old covenant rules and regulations in order to be right with God. Something had happened. Their passion for Christ was starting to dissipate. Sin was starting to flourish, as you see in Galatians 5, and their fruitfulness was being hindered because they are no longer walking by the Spirit as they once were. Something was hindering the flow of the Spirit, you might say, in their life. Well, what was the problem? The problem was this false teaching that had somehow crept in and embedded itself into their thinking, into their feeling about God and the gospel and what it means to be right with God. Scholars have called this group of Jewish believers, it was Jewish believers uh, uh, who came into this church, they had claimed to, to know Christ, they were, had a Jewish background, they claimed to know Christ, they did say that 
you had to believe in Christ in order to be saved, but you didn't just believe in Christ. They added something to the gospel, and they were preaching it to these Galatians, this, these Galatian Christians, and scholars have called these people Judaizers. So if I refer to them as Judaizers, that's who I'm referring to. These Judaizers were simply Jewish professing believers who said, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to obey the Old Testament, the Old Covenant laws and regulations, dietary restrictions, keeping the Sabbath, circumcision for the male believers. You need all of that in order to be right with God. And apparently, so circumcision was the big piece, but it wasn't, as we'll see in the book of Galatians, and those of you who are familiar with Galatians, you'll know this, that circumcision was a big deal, that these Judaizers wanted the male believers to be circumcised. And if you, couldn't, if you weren't circumcised according, to, circumcised according to them, then you could not be saved. But it wasn't just circumcision. It was also keeping feast days and uh, other kinds of Old Testament regulations. And, and you see this in Galatians 4.10. These Galatians were now starting to observe days and months and years, something they had been freed from because you didn't need to do that now that you were a believer. Christ had fulfilled all the Old Testament requirements, and it was through faith in him that you were now righteous before God and that you stood right before God. They had embraced the good news that Jesus' Jesus's death was sufficient to cover all of your sin, that Jesus' righteousness was sufficient to give you all the righteousness you need to be right with God so that you stand right before God, before your Creator, simply by believing in Jesus, simply by believing a message, and that the Spirit would dwell in you simply by believing a message. They had believed that, and they knew that they had been delivered by, God, uh, by God's grace into this life of freedom from the Old Covenant. But now they had become ensnared in a subtle, false teaching from these Judaizers. And I say subtle because that's typically the way that false teaching works. False teachers sound legit. They're typically very crafty. They trade on Christian language. They make their teaching sound righteous. It may have gone like this. This is, this is how I expect it probably was going in Galatia with these false teachers. They might have said something like this. Yes, Jesus is essential for salvation. But would God really give you the Old Covenant law just to disregard it and never to use it again? Would he really give us circumcision and special feast days and then say those things are no longer useful? Certainly not. Why don't you just cover all of your bases and you're good. Jesus, Old Testament law, it's a nice little package. There you go. Paul's saying if you add anything to Jesus, it's like multiplying by zero. You may, have, you may start with 10 trillion, but you add anything, you multiply anything by zero and you end up with zero. That was the problem. If you try to add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus completely. So they sounded good. It sounded righteous. You almost hear they're like, yeah, God wouldn't just disregard the old covenant. That's right. He would. And now they've got you. They've ensnared you. And now you think you need to obey that covenant in order to keep your right standing with God. And so Paul's mind is blown. He's perplexed. He even says that. Look at the word he uses in verse 6. I am astonished. You, wait, wait a second. You're telling me that I came and I preached and you embraced this beautiful, glorious gospel that you are righteous before a holy God by simply believing in Jesus Christ who has wrought all of your salvation for you. You are freed from that old covenant law. And now you're saying that you're being tempted to drift back to it? How can this be? He's astonished. His mind is blown. He couldn't believe that this was happening. But notice that he calls it a gospel. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's interesting he uses the word gospel here because that's what false teachers will give you. They won't come in the door and say, Anybody who would like to bear the wrath, the eternal wrath of God forever, please stand up and line up at the door. We've got what you want, and we can give it to you. That's not how false teachers operate. They sound righteous. They give you a gospel. They give you what they would say is good news. And that's why Paul says, I am so, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Because on the outside, it does look like good news. It sounds kind of right. Jesus, Old Covenant, cover all my bases? And you might be thinking, yeah, Derek, this is first century Galatia. This isn't happening today. I had a conversation 
with a man a couple of years ago and asked him point blank. I said, sir, he's from a different denomination. I said to him, sir, are you telling me that when someone believes in Christ, they are still under God's judgment until they're baptized? Because this church believes that you have to be baptized in order to be right with God. And he told me, yes. And guess what? Guess what that kind of sounds like? Sounds like another gospel. Why don't you just cover all of your bases? In fact, I was talking to a girl even prior to that from the same denomination, and that's the kind of language she used. I just want to cover all my bases, make sure I'm safe. Paul says that's another gospel. It sounds right. Yeah, I should just, I should give it, I should cover it all. Paul is saying that's another gospel, but it's actually no gospel at all. See what he says? He says, there are some who trouble, uh, that not that there is another one. See what he says right after that? He says, you're turning to a different gospel, but not that there is another one. There's not really another gospel. It's packaged as good news. It's packaged as righteousness. It's packaged as, e as eternal deliverance from your sin, but it actually condemns you. There's only one genuine article, and this is the way counterfeiting works. Whether you're counterfeiting money or proprietary technology or clothing, the goal is to get as close to the original as possible so that a person either mistakes the fake for the original or doesn't care about the original at all. That's, that's the goal of counterfeiting. But even when you counterfeit, there still only remains one genuine article. There still only remains one genuine $100 bill. There only remains one genuine iPhone. There still only remains one genuine pair of Nike Air Jordans. You have the counterfeit and you have the real genuine piece. The fake is not really the real thing and that's the point and that was Paul's point. There's not really another gospel. There are just some among you who are trying to get you to believe that there is. And I can't believe that you would actually buy into that after you had tasted and seen that the Lord is good in the gospel. Well, apparently they had, and this is why Galatians is so important for us today, because we can never think that for a moment we are not susceptible to the encroachment of wrong thinking about the gospel and beginning to, trying to attempt to earn our own righteous, righteousness before God. That false teaching and wrong thinking can't creep into even the strongest of churches. It can even affect an apostle, Peter, as we'll see in a bit. So Paul's message here is vital. He is concerned. He's, his head is, you just can't believe that the Galatians would drift over to this other gospel. And so he says some very strong things. He says in verse 8, he says, But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Whoa! What? Paul, that's a little harsh. As we have said before, so we now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What is he saying here? He's first he's saying that this true gospel that, that he's referring to, that there's the gospel and then the, the kind of gospel, or the gospel and the not gospel, is that it's what he originally preached to the Galatians. Notice what he says. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, so there was this gospel that he and his associates preached to them originally, and you can draw a circle around that gospel and say, this is the eternal gospel that saves. Any tweaking of this gospel deserves an eternal curse. Why? Because it damns eternal souls. So there's this fixed gospel, and whatever he and his associates taught, that is the gospel. It's fixed in time and space. And so much so that if Paul were to come back, this, listen to his language, even if we, so if he or his associates went back to Galatia and said, oh, no, 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 it's different. It's a different gospel. He's saying that, no, there's this gospel that stands on its own. It's what we originally preached to you. That is the eternal truth of God. So much so that even if we or an angel from heaven comes down and attempts to persuade you otherwise, that angel or that person should be uh, condemned to hell because now they are attempting to condemn you to hell. That's how strong it is. The gospel stands on its own apart from any man, even apart from Paul. It's Christ's gospel. Even though it is preached by Paul, it is independent 
from Paul. The gospel has a life of its own, so to speak. You can even see this in Acts. It's kind of neat how you see the word was what multiplied. It ran and was multiplied. It was the word. It's the gospel. There's only one heavenly gospel. And happily, we can be certain that it is the one that Paul preached, undiluted, passed on from Jesus to him and now to us. And again, why such strong language? Why such strong language? I mean, come on, Paul. Isn't it, isn't it fine for that, that person from that other denomination to kind of lean on their baptism a little bit, to cover them? They, don't, they lean on Jesus for 98% of their righteousness and 2% on their baptism for their, the latter 2% of their righteousness. Isn't that fine? Paul would say, no, that, that can damn you to hell. And because that can damn you to hell, that person who's preaching that and teaching that is under a divine curse. That's how serious it is. A false gospel entices you to bear the curse of the law on your own when Jesus has already borne it all for you. And what we do when we try to add to that is we we rob Jesus Christ of his glory because he has accomplished our righteousness and we put our souls in danger. Now, here's what's ironic in all this. The claim by these false teachers was that Paul was distorting the gospel. Paul points out that they're trying to tweak it. They actually, their, their strategy was to say, no, it's Paul who's distorting it. And what kind of um, confusion these false teachers are sowing. So now what Paul needs to do is he kind of needs to reestablish his credentials so that they can know again with certainty that the gospel they originally believed is the gospel from Jesus, the Jesus gospel, the grace alone gospel. But that was precisely the point that they were attacking. They were saying, given, given by the way Paul talks about the, the, the Jerusalem apostles and his relationship to them, it's likely that what these false teachers were saying is that Paul had received the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles, and the Jerusalem apostles like Peter, James, and John, those guys, they knew that you needed to keep the law too. But then Paul comes along and he kind of tweaks it and he turns it into this grace alone, faith alone thing, and now we have a distorted gospel. So they're claiming that Paul's distorting the gospel, and Paul's going to say, That can't stand, that claim can't stand logically. It can't stand empirically, and I'm going to show you why. The gospel that I preached is the gospel that came directly from Jesus, undiluted. It is a real heavenly gospel. And happily for us in God's providence, and this is the way these epistles work, Paul is going to give a number of pieces of evidence to to solidify in our minds that his gospel is from Jesus, And he's going to give it to the Galatians, and we can listen in, and so now we can also derive benefit from Paul's argument. So we can be certain that Paul's gospel comes from Jesus. So that's what's going to happen here. There's nothing more important in the world than knowing that the gospel you believe is from Jesus Christ himself. There are people in the world today who would argue that their gospel that they come and knock on your door and talk to you about is from Jesus Christ. Is there anything more important in the world than knowing for certainty that your gospel is from Christ? And so Paul is going to now lay out how you can know with absolute certainty that it is. So we're going to look at six pieces of evidence for how we can know that the gospel that Paul preaches is from Jesus. And it's really quite simple. This is not complicated. You don't need a kind of a PhD in biblical hermeneutics to kind of figure this out. Paul lays it out very plainly for you as the Bible reader, which is just, I love telling the young adults this. I just love telling them all the time, like, you know what you need to be good at doing? Just good at reading the Bible. You don't need multiple degrees in theology. Just read the Bible, read the text, read the words. Notice the connecting words. This is what Paul says. Notice how simple it is. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And you're thinking, well, that's pretty rudimentary. Well, it is rudimentary. Like, okay, guys, listen, let's start at square one. The gospel, the good news I preached to you, it's not man's gospel. It doesn't have a human origin. It has a divine origin. So the first thing we need to settle is that it is a gospel from Jesus. It was... The gospel preached for me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man. (laughs) I mean, we are getting really rudimentary here. Okay, let's follow Paul. Pretty simple. The gospel that I preach, Galatians, it's not from man. Why? Because I didn't receive it from man. 
Okay, that, that follows, doesn't it? Follows logically. I got it. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's the claim. It's not man's gospel. I received it from Jesus Christ. Period. And you might be thinking, well then how do I know that? Okay, it follows that you, it's not man's gospel because you received it from Jesus. How do I know that you received it from Jesus? And now he's going to lay out from verses 13 in chapter 1 to verse 14 in chapter 2. He's now going to lay out six solid pieces of evidence for you to know, for, for you to be able to know that it, he received this gospel as a revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the first piece of evidence? Number one, Paul's powerful and unlikely conversion. This is verses 13 through 16. Paul's powerful and unlikely conversion. The first piece of evidence that Paul provides the Galatians for why they could be certain that the gospel he preaches is from Jesus Christ is because of his own conversion. Just consider Paul for a moment. And he's, he's, you can see God's providence in saving Paul. He, he, one of the reasons why God saved Paul is so that you can see him and go, Anybody can be saved. Anybody can be saved. That, that's the whole point. God wants you to see in Paul, if you're someone who's like, I can never be saved, Paul wants you to, God wants you to see in Paul someone who you would think the same thing about and have confidence that God can save you or save your neighbor who's recalcitrant or whoever. Paul was saved, but he was also saved to demonstrate that the only plausible explanation for why someone could be saved or who could be changed in this way, was that God reached down from heaven and sovereignly changed his heart. Because just consider Paul for a moment. He was one of the rising stars in his religion. Notice what he says. He says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism. And then look down at verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age of my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Paul loved the traditions. He loved Judaism. He loved pursuing righteousness by the law. He loved advancing in righteousness beyond his other peers. He loved growing in stature and in recognition in Judaism, in his studies and his knowledge and his practicing of the law. He loved all of that. He was growing in religious stature and recognition. He, he, he loved all of that. He was the very personification of Judaistic zeal, wasn't he? Notice what he says earlier in verse 13, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So this is how passionate Paul is about Judaism. Not only is he just enthralled about the whole structure of the system and pursuing righteousness by the law and being more righteous than other people, but now he can demonstrate that he's truly committed because he's going to wipe out this counterfeit Judaistic sect called Christianity. He's going to, have, he's going to capture people, put them in prison, and even approve of their being killed. How could it be that he could turn on a dime and renounce his entire approach to God and say that it was nothing but human waste? How could he do that? How could he turn on a dime and say, all of that I cast overboard, I don't even want to look at it anymore, it reeks of self-righteousness, and I don't even want to consider it anymore, what a waste of time. And now I preach Jesus and grace and I love the church and I love Christians. And how does that happen? Is that just kind of a psychological thing that he just woke up someday? And, you know, I like to have a better life. I mean, I'm kind of a jerk. I need to, I need to grow, you know, whatever it might have been. I don't think so. And that's not Paul's explanation. And that's not even a legitimate Explanation. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born had called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. What happened? God in his divine eternal plan had chosen Paul to be saved and not only to be saved, but to play a remarkable role in redemptive history, to go to the Gentiles initially. We want the one who's going to chart this course among the Gentiles. God sovereignly reached down and changed Paul's heart, opened his eyes to behold the glory and beauty of Christ and being saved by grace alone. That's what happened. And that's really the only explanation you can give for why someone like Paul would be all of a sudden converted to Jesus Christ. 
Not as some sort of mental decision, but as an entire life transformation. So that's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence that Paul's gospel came from Jesus Christ is that his, he was totally independent from the Jerusalem apostles. So this is point two, verses 1, 18 through chapters two, chapter 2, verse 3. Paul's independence from the Jerusalem apostles. What do we mean by this? When we, when we say Jerusalem apostles, we mean those who are in Jerusalem, but mainly Peter, James, and John, the, the influential ones. Paul was not one of the 12 apostles. Remember, Paul, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He was one untimely born, as he said. He was saved on the road to Damascus when Christ revealed himself. He was not one of the original cohort of Jesus' disciples. So here Paul is making the case that his gospel was not dependent upon this, the Jerusalem disciples' gospel, the Jerusalem apostles, the original disciples. The gospel that he preached was from Christ Jesus himself. Watch what he says. When God was pleased to reveal his son to him, to Paul, in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Or if you're reading the New American Standard, it says with flesh and blood. It just means with no human. I did not immediately need to go to any human being to ask them, can you confirm this Jesus gospel that I just received mm, from Jesus? It's not necessary. He didn't need to. He didn't even need to go to Jesus' original disciples and ask them. And that's his point. His gospel is from Christ. Their gospel is from Christ. It should be the exact same gospel, which it turns out it is. And he didn't rely upon them to teach him that gospel. Remember what I said earlier. The false teachers were likely claiming that he had gotten his gospel from the, dis the disciples, they knew that you needed to obey the Old Testament law. They were Jews, by the way, true Jews, right? And so they knew that, and they taught Paul that, but then Paul tweaked it and turned it into this grace alone thing, and Paul had distorted it. Now Paul's argument is to show that his gospel that he preaches is entirely independent from the, di the, the disciples. He, he didn't get his gospel from them. It couldn't have been that way. That's his argument. I didn't, when I was received that gospel, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem? Whoa! Like the, the, the headquarters of Christianity. That's astonishing, actually, as we'll see in a moment. For Paul to just, I didn't go to Jerusalem, the very birthplace of Christianity, where all the apostles are. What didn't he do? He didn't go there. I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He didn't need to consult with the apostles. Then verse 18, finally, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So it wasn't even until after three years that he even went and saw Peter. And even then, he was only there for 15 days. And even then, he only saw James, the Lord's brother. So it's likely, yes, when, when Paul was with Peter for those 15 days, they probably weren't just talking about the latest sports records coming out of Greece or whatever. They were probably talking about the gospel. But what's not happening is that Paul needed to shore up some kind of ignorance on his part from Peter. He, he's saying that I didn't even go up there until after three years. And even then, we only spent 15 days. And yes, they talked about spiritual things. But he didn't, Paul didn't go up there in order to kind of shore up ignorance on his part of the gospel. Be like, hey, Peter, can you kind of fill this in for me? I'm not sure if what I'm teaching is the right thing. His point is that he didn't need that kind of recourse to instruction from the apostles. The gospel that he got was from Jesus. And he even seals his testimony with, and what I'm writing you before God, I do not lie. So here's your choice. Here's your choice. Paul's claim is he received the gospel he preaches, he received from Jesus, and you can either believe it or not. But he's telling you he's not lying about it, and he's laying out all the evidence. So he, he leaves you with a, a binary choice. Either you can believe it or not. But the evidence is laid right before you. He's not lying about it. So after his visit to Jerusalem to see Peter, he went into different regions, Syria and Sicilia. And he, he also says that he didn't see the other uh, churches face to face. Then in, I went to those regions of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that were in 
Christ. Only they're hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. And these points that we see here in this paragraph, something I've already mentioned, is that Paul didn't really need to go to Jerusalem. It wasn't terribly important to him at this point, which again is astonishing. Jerusalem is the center of Old Testament activity. It's the birthplace of Christianity. It's where it's from where all the, the, the apostles get sent out after Jesus ascends. I mean, this is for Paul to say, ah, Jerusalem, eh, Jerusalem apostles, eh. I mean, it, it just, it's remarkable that he would, he would speak this way. But the point is, is not to disrespect Jerusalem. The point is, is that he didn't need that because he had received the gospel from Christ himself. And this attitude towards Jerusalem as not being some sort of sacred place where he was going to go get his ignorance taken care of about the gospel is confirmed in verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. After 14 years, so then three years after his conversion, then 14 years later after that, he goes again to Jerusalem to see the uh, apostles, but it wasn't because he needed to. It says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them. So he likely was be having revelation from Jesus telling him, you need to go up to Jerusalem. It wasn't because after those 17 years, he's thinking, oh, what should I do? I'm getting confused again. His whole point is that his gospel, what he taught, the good news that he taught was independent from these Jerusalem apostles. But what did he do when he goes when he up there? And this is important because this is sometimes misinterpreted, um, I think. It says, I went, up to Jerusalem, I went up because of a revelation. So he didn't go up because he was compelled to go up due to ignorance. He went up because of a revelation. So what it seems like here is that it's, it's Christ who is saying you need to go up to Jerusalem. And I set before them, the Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, John, though privately before those who seemed influential, okay, so these apostles, as you can imagine, original Jesus disciples would have some influence in Jerusalem. I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was running or had not run in vain. And interpreters will key in on that and say, see, Paul wasn't sure of what he was doing. He wasn't sure of his gospel. And if you come to that conclusion by, from reading that, that sentence, it's because you haven't considered the entire thrust of Paul's argument up to this point or the rest of what he will say from that point on. You're basically just taking that text out and isolating it from everything that Paul's doing. His whole point is to convince you that his gospel is independent from the, the apostles. He doesn't need their instruction. He got it all from Jesus Christ. What he likely means here is that, yes, the disciples were influential. And so if they are not going to endorse his ministry to the Gentiles, then a lot of his previous work would have been nullified because they are influential. He's not saying that I'm not sure about the gospel and I need to make sure that I'm preaching the right gospel. No, what he's saying is if the, these apostles don't endorse my ministry to the Gentiles, then a lot of my previous work will have been nullified. So he goes to them, sets before them the apostle. And an important piece of this is going to lead to our next uh, point, our next piece of evidence. He goes up to Jerusalem and he says in verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And you might read that and be like, who cares about circumcision, Derek? Well, this is important because his claim is that the go I, my gospel is independent from the, the gospel of the uh, Jerusalem apostles, but it is the same gospel. I'm not teaching something contrary to what they teach. It's not as though they teach that you must be circumcised, and I'm teaching, no, you're, you shouldn't be circumcised, or you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. Why? How do we know that? Because even in Jerusalem, no one is forcing Titus to be circumcised. No one is forcing Titus to obey the Old Covenant law. The Jerusalem apostles were not forcing Titus to be circumcised. Therefore, you can know that they are not teaching that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Our Gospels are the same. That's his point. 
Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Peter, James, and John are not telling anybody or forcing anybody to obey the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, in order to be right with God. That's his point. That brings us to point number three, Paul's unwillingness to yield to the false teachers. So the Jerusalem apostles weren't saying that, but there were people who were saying that. There were people saying that you do need to be circumcised. You do need to obey the old covenant law in order, order, or order to be right with God. And they were the false teachers. They were called false brothers. Yet because of false brothers, which is why we say that these people claim to be believers. Why call them a false brother unless they appeared as a brother and you're only a brother if you are claiming the name of Christ. So these were false brothers secretly brought in. They crept in. Again, that's just, this is how false teachers operate. They don't typically come in, and I say typically because I've seen this, but they don't typically come in waving pamphlets and signs saying, uh, I'm a false teacher. But what they do is, is they come in and they come in secretly, they sit next to you, they talk with Christian language, and then they start uh, interfering with your walk with the Lord by in, in, uh, embedding wrong thinking and so on into your, into your life. Paul says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, verse 5, this is the important point, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So here the false teachers come in. They, they can't believe that you can be freed from the old covenant law and somehow you're able to just believe in Christ. They're, they are spying out their, the Christian's freedom and, and they're probably saying, no, you do need to be circumcised. You do need to obey the Old Covenant law. You do need to add some works to Jesus. Paul's saying, we didn't yield to them for one moment. I've been consistent the whole way through. You are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, period. And when a false teacher comes in and attempts to tinker with that, we don't yield to them for a moment. They say, Titus needs to be circumcised. Nope. Paul, you need to obey the, the Sabbath laws? Nope. He doesn't yield to them for a moment. He continued to remain free from the dietary laws, free from observing the Sabbath, free from requiring circumcision to Gentiles. He, can, he was convinced wholeheartedly that a person is justified by faith in Christ alone, not in obedience to the old covenant law. And he did not back down and concede to anyone for one moment. And that ties in with what he had said in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's, here's Paul's character. If you're a false teacher teaching that a, someone must obey the old covenant law and believe in Jesus, Paul's going to confront that. As we'll see in a moment, if you're an apostle, and you start walking in a way that undermines the gospel, Paul will confront that. Why? Because he received his gospel from Jesus Christ himself, and he is beholden to Christ, he's beholden to that gospel, and he's beholden to no man. He would not yield to the Judaizers, nor would he put up with hypocrisy in an apostle. When it came to the gospel. So that's piece of evidence number three, Paul's, that Paul's gospel came from Christ. Piece of evidence number four, Paul's lack of fascination with the Jerusalem apostles. Notice what he says in verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't help me along with the gospel. He wasn't fascinated with the Jerusalem apostles. He wasn't, he didn't undermine their authority. He recognized their authority, but he wasn't starry-eyed either. And this is an important balance. This is not disrespectful. It may sound a little disrespectful. It's not disrespectful. It's sober-mindedness. Paul was riveted to the truth of the gospel. That is what captured and compelled him. You swerve from that, you're going to get it from Paul, no matter who you are. 
Why? Because God shows no partiality. God doesn't smile and pat the head of an apostle when they are starting to drift off the grid. And Paul approaches the apostles the same way. Yes, Paul would write that they were the foundation of the church, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. That's in Ephesians 2.20. He recognizes their authority. He recognizes their unique place in redemptive history. But he's not mesmerized. He's not starry-eyed. It didn't put the apostles beyond correction if they needed it, which is what we see in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. Paul would correct it to their face and not just swing it, sweep it under the rug saying, oh, well, they're influential, so I can't say anything. Better not say anything to Peter because, you know, he's one of the influential ones. Again, this is not disrespectful. Out of reverence for Christ, Paul revered the, the authority that the apostles had, which is why, what is, which is why he says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built upon their teaching. But he's sober-minded, sober-minded about the gospel, the truth of the gospel. It's not disrespectful, just sober-minded. Some people may think that if you're not starry-eyed and mesmerized and get weak at the knees at certain Christian leaders, that you are being disrespectful. You're not. You're just being sober-minded. We should honor, listen to, and love, and imitate the faith of our leaders, and even submit to them when they are teaching us God's word accurately. But we shouldn't overestimate them or think that they're beyond correction. And Paul sets a good example by the way he was not infatuated with the apostles or pined after the approval of the apostles. Why? Because he was so confident and certain of this gospel that he had received from Jesus Christ himself. He was stable and steady because of that gospel he had received from Christ. Number five. Paul's ministry confirmation by the Jerusalem apostles. So far from telling Paul he was wrong or far from saying we don't endorse your ministry, they actually endorsed it fully. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the, entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What's, what's going on here? The this, this Spirit is simply conveying through the apostles in Jerusalem that, that God had worked through Peter and Paul had worked, God had worked through Paul in his ministry. They recognized that the same God, the same spirit, the same gospel was at work in both people, in both ministries. So far from saying that Paul was wrong or not, we're not going to endorse your ministry, they in fact gave him the right hand of fellowship and say, continue to do what you're doing, Paul. We are in full agreement. And you can just see with every piece of evidence he's laying, the, 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 the argument of the false teachers is just being set to shambles here, right? They, have, they don't have a leg to stand on anymore. The apostles in Jerusalem and Paul were in full agreement about what the gospel was. Why? Because they both received it directly from Jesus Christ. Number six. This is the sixth piece and final piece of evidence. Paul's confrontation of an apostle for hypocrisy. Now, this could be an entire sermon in itself. But what Paul does here, notice what he does. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What happened? Well, it says, before certain men came from James, he was eating uh, with the Gentiles. And, and interpreters typically, mean, or typically mean, uh, see this as meaning coming from James or purporting to come from James. Like, hey, we're from James. Uh, he sent us down here to check things out. And when Peter saw them, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. You might be thinking, well, whoop de do. He's eating with the Gentiles. What does that have to do with anything? Well, if you were a Jew in the, under the Old Covenant, you didn't have relationship with, the, with Gentiles. You were under strict dietary regulations. You couldn't eat with Gentiles because of what they eat, and you also couldn't eat with Gentiles because God is creating a distinct and separate and holy nation, and so you had no dealings with the pagan nations. It's not that way anymore with the gospel. God eliminates all distinctions between all people now, between Christians and everybody else, by saying that we are only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, all people are saved the same way. 
And so now that distinction, that barrier is destroyed. And now Peter, as a Christian, even though he is a Jew by birth and by upbringing, he can now sit down and eat a meal with Gentiles. It's a huge signal that the gospel is for everybody and that there are no more distinctions between Jew and Gentile. He was doing that. He was having table fellowship, enjoying sweet fellowship with Gentile believers. But when some people came purporting to be from James, some Jews came down, he separated himself and stopped eating with the Gentiles. And again, you might be thinking, well, who cares? So he didn't eat with the Gentiles. What he's doing here is he's signaling to them that actually, you know what? You do need to keep the Old Testament dietary restrictions. I'm going to pull away. If you want to be doing what's right in God's sight, you need to come over here with me and you need to have the same kind of dietary restrictions. That, that move away from the Gentiles signals a whole load of theology and a whole load of wrong thinking. And, uh, and Paul comes over and now he needs to confront him. That's what he says. He says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. He doesn't say that Peter is here acting like a, he's not a false teacher. He's acting hypocritically because Peter himself is going against the very principles that he believes. He was eating with the Gentiles because he believes that the gospel has eliminated every barrier between Jew and Gentile. And him stepping away is acting hypocritically because it goes against his principles. He wasn't teaching these wrong things. His conduct was starting to undermine the gospel, but he wasn't teaching these things as though he heartily believed them. He was acting hypocritically, and his hypocrisy is affecting other people. And when Paul saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, in other words, you were brought up as a Jew, you no longer have the dietary restrictions in Christ, how is it that you can force Gentiles to now live like a Jew and be under dietary restrictions? That's called, what? It's called hypocrisy. And that's what Paul confronts. And there's a lot more we could say about this situation, but Paul's rehearsal of this episode with Peter is part of his larger goal of proving to the Galatians that his gospel is not from man. It's from Jesus Christ. By resisting the false teachers and confronting the apostles, or the apostle, Paul demonstrated that he would not waver on the gospel that Christ had entrusted to him. He would not waver. You could slug him with a bat. He's not going to waver on the truth of the gospel. He has been consistent all the way through. He hasn't changed. The evidence is stacked against the false teachers who would claim that he has tweaked the gospel. And in fact, his conduct, his life has demonstrated that he has been consistent all the way through. Why? Because he's so great? No, because God had saved him and entrusted him with a gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And now he had given it to the Galatians. He had written it down and that they, they had it. If a Judaizer started to teach things contrary to the gospel, Paul would confront them. If an apostle started to live in a way that would undermine the gospel, Paul would confront him. Why? Because he is enraptured with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are justified by faith in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. Why? Because Christ has wrought all the righteousness you need in his life and in his death on the cross. So, the people of Galatia could know for certain that Paul's gospel was directly from Christ, and now we can know for certain here at CBC that Paul's gospel is directly from Jesus Christ. There's only one gospel. Paul had not tweaked it, he had not changed it, he had not manipulated it. What was that gospel? Well, we're going to dive deeply into that next week, but let's just close by reminding ourselves what that gospel is. Here it is. God is a God of unswerving righteousness. And we have violated that righteousness in Adam and in our own actions, in our own thoughts, in our own affections, which are not Godward. God's righteous demands require that he punish us for our rebellion against him, for small acts of rebellion, for large acts of rebellion, just like a just judge must see to it that a serial child murderer is punished. Justice must be served in that case, in an earthly court, and in our case before God. Because all of our sin, all of our actions, our thoughts, our affections are not Godward. They are selfward. They are earthly. They are sinful. 
but he has provided a way for us to be right with God by sending his son to live a perfect life and fulfill all of God's law in our place and then to go to the cross to bear the punishment that the law requires in our place. Everything is done in our place. He bore our sin. He bore God's wrath. He rose again on the third day. He is alive, seated in heaven right now with Jesus, uh, with his heavenly Father. And now all that's left to be saved, to be justified before God is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And next week, we're going to plumb the depths of that gospel and even ask the question, how can I know whether or not maybe some wrong thinking has crept into my life? What, how can I know if I am starting to walk by works of the law and not by faith in Christ? Because that's what was happening in Galatia. And there are some signs that we can pick up on and know whether or not we are walking rightly in the Spirit or whether we are living by works of the law. So that's what we'll do next week. Let's pray, and then we'll have a time of singing, and we'll go to communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you've put together the New Testament, and just by the occasion of Paul writing to the Galatians and having to reestablish his credentials and reestablish how they can know for certain that the gospel came from Jesus, that his gospel came directly from Jesus, and the gospel that he preached to them is from Jesus. Now we can know that for certain as well. We have multiple pieces of evidence from Paul's life that help us to be absolutely certain that the gospel that he preaches is from Jesus. There is no other gospel. There is no other heavenly gospel. God, would you open our eyes to behold the gospel and all of its truth Help us even next week as we think about are there ways that we are walking according to works of the law and we started to drift into trying to establish our own righteousness. Would you help us to see that as well so that our hearts might be refreshed in the truth that Christ has borne the curse of the law in his body on the tree, that we no more bear it, that there is nothing left to do but to believe in Jesus and to glory in him. And I ask that you would do this powerful work among us for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.